Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. This week's episode, again, another one recorded uh, in the studio before all of this COVID-19 situation. Uh, And also uh, a slightly shorter episode because this was going to be part of one of the new format of episodes with two guests per episode. But uh, here is the whole interview during this weird time where we can't get into the studio. Robin chatting to young adult author Lisa Williamson about her new book, Paper Avalanches. Reminder to sign up to our Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles is the address for that. And you'll get extended editions of pretty much every episode of Book Shambles we put out, plus lots of other goodies, exclusive live streams and uh, bits and pieces of merch, which we will send you as soon as we're allowed to go to the post office if you signed up to that tier. Uh, the Stay at Home Festival, don't forget that, still running every morning at 10 and 10.30 and then weekend shows and evening shows as well with Robin and Josie. Cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home for all the listings and the tip jar uh, to support artists and venues that we're doing as part of that show or that series of shows. And also a reminder that next Sunday, May 17th at 7pm, we are still doing our Sea Shambles show, or at least a uh, rejigged version of it, online, live at 7pm as part of the Royal Albert Home series of shows. Obviously, we were meant to be doing it live in the Royal Albert Hall, but that is not an option anymore or rather at the moment, I should say. So we are doing it online at 7pm. It is going to be basically an online version of what that show would have been, or if you've ever been to Nine Lessons or Compendium, that sort of thing, hosted by Robin and Helen Chesky and Steve Backshaw. It's going to go for about three hours, because these things usually do. We have got loads of guests lined up who will be doing all sorts of things. Liz Bonin, Brian Cox, Kobe Smulders, Reese Shearsmith, Helen Scales, Tamsin Edwards, Grace Petrie, Rufus Hound, Natalie Haynes, Doc Brown, Lem Cisse, David McCormont, uh, Jim Moray, uh, Sebley Delisle. We're still doing lasers. It's online, but we've still got lasers. Uh, and that will be free to watch, 7pm from the Royal Albert Hall and the Cosmic Shambles website. Also raising funds as part of that show for the Stay at Home Festival and the Royal Albert Hall Charity and also various ocean and marine conservation charities. So do go and check that out. Now, uh, here is Robin and Lisa. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, as regular listeners will know, Josie's on tour, seemingly forever. In fact, she wasn't even here much last year. She didn't even have an alibi. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, we're joined today by Lisa Williamson, who uh, has uh, done, well, incredible. Is it technically young adult? Because I don't know what the terms are anymore in terms (laughs) of... I remember when I was just saying to you before we started recording that I used to work in a children's bookshop and they went through so many different ways uh, 30 years ago of trying to work out how you can say teenagers this is a book for you but at the same time we're not patronising you so yeah things... it's difficult because I think so officially young adult 
again, I'm saying officially, there, is, there are no official terms. So generally, it's kind of, I guess, 13 upwards. Um, but then sometimes there's like a teen category that's kind of younger teen. And then maybe young adult might have more, um, I don't know, racier content, um, maybe. I don't know why I use the word racy. Um, but yeah, it's all a bit fluid. And obviously, most of the people who read young adult books are not young adults. So yeah. it's kind of an arbitrary title, I guess. Anyway. Well, you're because that's what I, I, one of my favourite books of the last few years is Yana Teller's Nothing. I don't know if you you read her book. No, which I is, haven't. No. Uh, which is technically it's meant to be. It doesn't matter. That's the thing that I think is a pity is some of the books are. It, you, I think people would think, oh, I better not read that now because I'm an adult. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they deal with so many interesting themes. And your books in particular, you seem to. Do you when you start writing a book, is it important to you that you have? Uh, an idea of, of what you want to do to the um, readers as in terms of it seems that all of your books have dealt with something which can be very, very useful to go into some of your, the importance of stories, which allows us to that old line, which I, I think is probably Catelyn Moran. You know, how, how can I be uh, until I can see, mm. you know, until I've actually been given uh, an example. Yeah. So, of course, as we know, especially when you're a teenager, you can so often feel that those thoughts in your head that you are. It, you're, you're a freak and you're the only one and also because you're even more fearful of shame you are therefore even more likely to keep sometimes extremely you know things that are co- mm, going to end up mm. being very unhealthy for you in yeah absolutely I think because I'm rubbish at plot so I can't plan a book so it is more I go in thinking yeah how do I want the reader to feel what kind of feel of, of the book I have and I don't go in thinking oh okay I want to tell you know this lesson or it's more just shining a light sometimes on subjects that I think don't ordinarily get put at the forefront of books so like my first book was about transgender teenager um and I just realized when I started writing the book that there were so few books out there that explored this and I was working um for the gender identity development service for the NHS um clinic that is for under 18s dealing with gender identity and I started you know are there any books about this and I the ones I could find were mostly American and I think even though we speak the same language it is different being a teenager here mm. than in the US and some of the books are so gloomy and and I, I guess I want all my books to kind of have quite um a bit of hope in them not in a number I don't want to sugarcoat things but I think life is sort of full of you know those dark moments but also lots of light as well so I guess I want to take a subject that um I feel maybe hasn't been written about or, or at least hasn't hasn't been written about in a way that does show the the light and the dark alongside each other so I think that's kind of my starting point um but then I start writing and lots of things surprise me as I go along and often the book ends up being about something a little bit different by the end so it's all a bit of a magical mystery tool for me as well as the reader I guess well that's I mean dealing with the issue of 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 uh trans issues generally I mean that was now it seems to have become extremely incendiary Mm. and there seem to be a lot of um very unhelpful feuds um, on kind of public platforms and social yeah, media, yeah. which don't really have any depth to them mm. and which do lead to a, a lot of, of dehumanisation. Mm. So when that book came out, how, and that would have probably been a, quite an early part of what is the current wave. Of, yeah. That how What was the reaction? So it came out in January 2015, and I think 2015 was a really interesting year because it was, you know, it was the year that Caitlyn Jenner came out, for example. Um, and I guess, you know, it was a very high-profile sort of trans coming out. Um, it was the year that I think Transparent um, hit on Amazon, and a few there were a few other like watershed moments, and it just seemed that the book was timed within that. Um, and I think 
now there is so like there are discussions about it like like you say every single day on Twitter I will see something about trans issues and that's partly due to this to the people I follow on Twitter um who are often um, activists in that area but even newspapers there's a there'll be a, a, a trans a story about trans issues pretty much every day and often quite quite negative um but for me I think the response I had from the transgender community was really just warm and lovely and um and you know full of sort of um gratitude just for it for just for the book existing really even if um because obviously not one character's um experience isn't going to reflect all young trans people that's impossible but just so many young people going I'm just so glad this book exists and like I can get it in a waterstones like I don't have to you know go to the back of the shop and ask for it or be you know sent to some sort of dusty section somewhere it's it's on a table in, in waterstones and I think that was a sort of a felt like a big deal for a lot of young people but I still get like this morning I got an email from a kid in Missouri in the US who just discovered the book and was just like oh my god you know I didn't think there were any books like this and I'm not saying I'm the only one to write about transgender teenagers but it's kind of yeah that's kind of special thing um, that I didn't I guess anticipate writing the book um but yeah, I do think that the way we talk about transgender issues has changed a lot in that we are talking about them. But I still think there's such a negative slant and um, a lot of people talking about them coming from a space of ignorance and a sort of lack of education and so on. So it's a frustrating um, conversation to have to witness when I kind of feel that there shouldn't be a conversation. It should just be people being and everybody letting them get on with being. Well, if it was a conversation, I think that's one of the things with so many different social and political issues, which is if you... I, I do not believe that social media is a platform where you can deal with anything with any depth. No. That it, it will immediately... It, it turns issues into... Immediately becomes a tribal issue. Mm. And it means that on every single side you see very often a, a small group of people elevated, yeah. often the loudest, often the most furious, often the ones who are... I mean, we see that in mass media on television all the time. You know, you, they always want to put someone on. If, if you have a Christian group, you want to find the worst Christian leader, yeah. you want to find the grumpiest atheist, and you want to... In the same... You know, that... that and, and I don't really understand why people, you know, haven't realised that this is not the place for, for the... Because it's not a conversation. No, not at all. It's, it's graffiti daubs <laughs> back and forth. Because I hate, te- like, I, I'm one of the few people, I, I really like talking on the phone. And I have so, so many, um, so many people I know, go, oh, God, I hate it. I never answer phone calls. And I'm like, I love, because that's the way, that's the way I want to communicate through, like, you know, looking someone in the eye and being able to, to elaborate and really explain yourself and have that back and forth, which is something I don't think you can do. Even the most articulate person, you just can't do that on Twitter. Um, do you ever find I mean can it how daunting is it if you when you've put out a book and it has been useful to people and they need to communicate and you are now that there's uh, someone we've talked about often on the show uh, Barry Crimmins the uh, late uh, American comedian and and he talked a lot about his own personal experience of um, abuse as a child and once he became public with that and especially things like the film that was made about his life it meant that he got hundreds of people writing to him thousands Mm. of fans and and he tried so hard to make sure that he gave response to every person. Um, but I also know that, that was a very, very daunting thing for, for, for him to do. And do you have moments where you think, do you know what? You 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 know, in your your bio mentions the fact you're a Sweet Valley High fan. <laughs> yeah. Do do you sometimes go, Do you know what? I I'm just gonna write my Sweet Valley High book. I'm just gonna write <laughs> my you know, I'm just gonna have it but because the moment you're opening that up, you're doing something that 
is going to be tremendously useful to people, but also which has you know needs as, and, and responses. Yeah, and I didn't really anticipate that because I thought I've, I've written this book and, and until I got the first email I was like oh this is gonna this is going to happen now and I don't get the volume that um, you know <laughs> that, that um, you were just speaking about it wasn't hundreds a day but still you know every couple of days I'll, I'll, I'll get a message from a young person sometimes from um, a parent sometimes from a much older trans person saying oh I discovered this book I, and I reply to all of them um, and most of the time it's just you know thanking them for the message and sort of um, but, but occasionally I have got you know people asking for advice and suddenly I think well I'm not actually qualified to do this I'm I am a writer who wrote a story um so there is this sort of strange line you feel you're sort of treading working out you know what's appropriate for me to say um and I don't want to feel like I have all the answers because I, I really don't. So, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's daunting. Um, my second book was about a middle child. So it was very much going for and I haven't had many messages from sort of embittered middle child saying, you know, help me deal with it. But certainly for the first one, it was it wasn't overwhelming, but it was surprising. And I did. And still every message I get, I try to answer with real care and thought and make sure that I don't that I'm okay with saying I don't know. I think when I was younger, I always wanted to have the answer. And I think I've I've got a bit better at sort of saying, I don't know, maybe you need to seek, you know, speak to somebody else. Um, so I try to keep everything sort of words of encouragement without without trying to give outright advice, um, I guess. But yeah, every single message you sort of have to look at separately. There's no sort of cut and, <laughs> cut and paste um, mm. response. <laughs> Yeah, Philip Pullman talks about that. I can't remember what the collection's called of his um, essays and lectures, but there's one that he did for, I don't know, the Carnegie Mellon Award or, yeah. or one of those. And it's a really beautiful one about his sense of responsibility mm. to the readers. At the same time, though, of course, you know, that it is. At times it can be overbearing and at times you have to work out a system. Um, the uh, Now we'll get on to the, your, your most recent book, which is Paper Avalanche, which is... Um, now, this is about a young girl, 14-year-old called Ro, and uh, her parents are split up, and her mother, who she's living with, is uh, a hoarder and is is, is battling mm. with, with those. And it's a, it's a lovely book, and it's a... Um, but again, it's that thing, isn't it, where when someone's got to 14 years old and they realize, and, and their, their shame and their fear of the fact that... And this is something that, you know, to some extent, Kerry Hudson's lowborn. We, we had Kerry in a, a, a while ago. You know, she, she in her autobiography the realisation that her mother and so many of her problems were actually, they were psychological problems which were never properly diagnosed. Um, and so having, so writing about this, why did you decide to, you know, that this this teenager's issue is, her mother is, is, has got the, this, this hoarding issue and she has that fear of anyone mm. knowing who she is, where she lives. And she can't in that in in that way from the certainly the start of the book she's unable really to have relationships with anyone. Yeah, uh, combination of things really. Um, I always like to write kind of not complete opposites, but but experiences that weren't mine as a teenager. Um, so I grew up in a house that was um, very very um, clean and tidy and quite sparse in a way. Um, my mum and dad both grew up in you know very very busy, untidy, messy households, and they really. Um, then went into their adulthood and were like, we want the opposite. So my mum and dad threw everything away. Sometimes things of quite sentimental value. Um, and I remember my friends always like, your house looks like a show home. Yeah. And it was all like coasters and shoes off. And um, and so the idea of of 
sort of that opposite experience. Um, my parents got rid of so much stuff. Why would you keep stuff? Has always been something that I found interesting. Um, and then I just saw, I think it was 2014, there was that um, Channel 4 series, The Hoarder Next Door. Mm. Um, and it was one of those things I would watch in the background some sometimes. And there was one episode that featured a woman in her early 40s who had a teenage son. And it was the first time I'd seen hoarding depicted and not involving an older person who often lived alone. I often... I think I associated hoarding with, you know, very isolated people who, you know, didn't have jobs, didn't have relationships. Mm. And this was just a very ordinary mother with her son. And um, I remember there were scenes in his bedroom and there was just all this stuff piled around him that wasn't his. And I remember thinking, what would that be like to not have your own space? And there were sort of scenes of him, you know, having his dinner, doing his homework, again, stuff piled around him. I just couldn't stop thinking about this this kid and what that must be like. And it was something that just was at the back of my head. Um and more and more, I thought, I think I want to write a book about this and sort of explore what that might be like. And then I started to read more books about hoarding and I found two really good memoirs um, from women who had grown up with mothers who hoarded. Actually, one was a case, it was a mother and her, her father who hoarded. And there was this real sense of shame and dread. And I came across all these terms like doorbell dread. So this idea that you know when the doorbell rings and the idea of having a decoy house which is something I put in the very first chapter so they would often sort of pick another house on the street and sort of pretend that was their house so friends would pick them up and drop them off at that house instead Um, and just lots of things that came up and that I really wanted I thought right I want to put this into a book and explore what that relationship would would be like and also because I think before I thought that a stereotypical hoarder was an elderly man or woman you know I I like the idea of making um, uh, the compulsive hoarder you know quite a glamorous character Mm. who is you know very charming and very sociable and the more I found out about hoarding I found that often people who have a a propensity to hoard are incredibly charming and sociable in many ways Um, but their um, compulsive hoarding does stop them from developing certain relationships because there is also that barrier that you can't mm. invite anybody anybody in. Um, but yeah, just I just loved getting sort of to the root of it and um, yeah, and discovering why why would why would somebody do that because it was so not my experience. See, what have you discovered uh, in terms of? Because I, I know that also the the excellent uh, TV series This Country as well uh, has um, I think in their third series is going to also be dealing with with hoarding as well. Mm. And uh, and I think that comes from, again, from quite a personal place, that story, which is, I think, in the in the times that we probably first knew about it, it was probably Mr. Trebus. I don't know if you know about Mr. Trebus. Who was the, the, this was a documentary, probably the early 90s. about, And, and it was kind of a novelty, and someone was just a bit, bit, bit of an odd bod, yeah. I suppose you would use. But it does seem there's more and more research in terms of the, what that is psychologically dealing with in terms of control or loss, or, you know, very often it has been after someone has, as far as I know, anyway, that, that it can be after someone has lost someone. Yeah, yeah. generally it stems to some sort of um, trauma or abuse often in childhood and adolescence, um, but not always. Um, and the, the more I read about it, I read a really excellent book called Stuff that was just loads of case studies. And um, one thing that I had in, in um, common that, yeah, something traumatic had happened in all of the people's lives. And obviously traumatic things happen to a lot of people. It doesn't necessarily mm. lead to hoarding, but... Um, but they sort of unpick it and and things start to sort of kind of that path kind of starts to um starts to make make some sort of um make some sort of sense um i guess 
and I, I think the main thing that I discovered was how common hoarding was. Mm. And I think the percentage is maybe 6% of the population are um, are affected by hoarding. That happens on every single continent. I think um, it's um, estimated that a third of house fires in Australia are due to hoarding, which was just kind of blew my blew my mind a bit because that's um so I, I think it was just the how common it is really 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 surprised me and obviously the um extremes within that vary hugely um but everybody i speak to they'll uh, say well we know what's your latest book about so oh, it's about a girl and a mum who's a compulsive hoarder and everyone will have a person in their family or friend and they go oh and you know my uncle or or whatever and i think it affects all of us in in maybe not directly um but it's something I think we can all have an, an opinion on and mm. sort of assess whether what our levels of um, tendencies to hoard or collect um, are. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about a thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. And this is, I mean, the, the story, it's about a lot of other things as well, the story. That's the, I mean, that, that, the burden of that anxiety, obviously, is a very important part mm. of it. And then you kind of write within it one of the, a, a character that's so lovely, Tanvi, <laughs> who is uh, um, a, 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 again, a similar age. I think she's, is she 14? She's she, 14 yeah. as well, yeah. And, and she survived a rare form of cancer and she's just this incredible ebullient force. And it really is, I mean, that's the thing, for, for that kind of hundred pages or so of the book, where Ro is trying to keep her secrecy, mm. trying to push her away. And you do find yourself going, come on, yeah. Tammy's really good. <laughs> She's climbed in a washing machine for fun. You know, all of these kind of... And, it, and it's um, a, ver- a very... When you go through... I mean, in terms of your personal mood when you're writing certain scenes, because Tamby is is all joy in, 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 in this, despite you know having gone through a terrible experience... She comes out and, and she's this in, incredible kind of rainbow force. And do you find yourself, when you finish a day, if, if you've particularly been dealing with the anxiety, do you find that that uh, is almost replicated in your own mood? Or is that, do, are they entirely separate things? I think I'm kind of opposite. So I prefer writing the scenes where really horrible things happen. I find that that's where I come sort of really like, oh, I'm really getting stuck into this. And I actually find the harder scenes are the ones that are quite up, <laughs> upbeat. Um, and so I did find um, the scenes where Tanvi is sort of really get, trying to get Ro on side and, you know, convincing her that, you know, being friends with her is going to be great and trying to get her to open up. I found those probably the most difficult because... Mm. Um, and I don't know why or, or sort of psychologically, psychologically what that says about me that I, f- I find the really grim scenes easier to write and almost more enjoyable to write. And But yet now I've written the book, I do, I love those sequences with Tanvi because I do think she's just this breath of fresh air in Rose World, which is, you know, pretty, pretty gloomy and so closed off. And I hate then, her dad. Oh, her dad's awful. How much am I going to hate her dad? I mean... I remember my editor saying, I think you can make the dad worse. Um, and actually by making, I didn't put, I almost took took more of him out. Um, but I do have friends whose relationships with 
their dads have sort of gone down a similar route and at some point I thought am I pushing this too much is this completely unrealistic and I think sadly you know it's yeah that's what I there were times not, when I thought maybe there'll be you know the, and and then I exactly like you I thought of various people who I go oh yeah that's what yeah, that's, what happened when the split happened yeah and the, yeah, I thought about writing. I did write a few scenes. I write a lot of stuff that I delete. Um, a few scenes where Dad gets this is a bit of a spoiler, but Dad gets redemption, and it just didn't seem it. It just wasn't working because I thought, no, I don't think this guy is going to get it. Um, so in the end, I I leave it that he still doesn't get it. Um, See, I think that's good. It was like I've, I've been watching the sitcom King Gary. I don't know if you've, you've, no. you've, you've seen it, which I, I really like. So, um, just about a kind of. Essex builder guy and, and and his family and what I like about it as a sitcom is very often it doesn't have uh, the characters themselves the lead characters are utterly delightful uh, frequently idiotic but filled with love and then every now and again you see an episode where you go god that other parent's an absolute ass. Mm. when are they going to get their comeuppance and they don't get their comeuppance it just moves somewhere else mm. and I like that because I always think that's one of the sometimes the, there's a beautiful thing about stories which they give resolution for everything but I also like the fact that if you get that too much you sometimes go no it is messy and it is strange and sometimes there isn't resolution yeah. but if you can show that there's not resolution and a character like Ro can still move on and find new opportunities through the other people that have come into her life as well I think that's if anything a kind of more uplifting story yeah because I think people can relate to it think okay maybe things aren't going to be perfect uh, but maybe they might just be okay mm. um, and that might be that might be acceptable um, so I think all I think all my books sort of maybe end on that note in a way that you know things are going to be okay but this you know it doesn't it hasn't stopped getting hard there are going to be other there's going to be a load of hard stuff you're not you know you're not through the woods yet but ultimately I think it's going to be okay and I think that is a sort of level of responsibility in way fiction perhaps that you do have to leave that nugget of hope mm. um there um and I think I'm, I'm aware of that when I when I go into it but also when I'm writing endings I don't want to tie everything up in a bow like if I'm going to tie up the bow the bow's got to be a bit frayed and coming undone um, when when the book ends and leave it with that sense of yeah it's going to be okay I think <laughs> yeah there's still a story the story's yes. not at the yeah, end yeah. Still the, uh, yeah very rarely has the some soup in the fridge have quite a, such a level of uh, horror to it the uh, <laughs> I won't do, you, you'll have to read it yourselves <laughs> listeners to find out about the soup um, <laughs> when you were a teenager what were you reading I was reading, um, so I think we mentioned Sweet Valley High. Mm. So there was a lot of me reading about these glamorous teenagers in California who I grew up in Arnold Nottingham. There was, I just couldn't relate to them. But it was, so that was quite escapism. So a few American series. There's one called Babysitter's Club. Um, See, now it makes me want Shane Meadows to make a Sweet Valley High because I think that mixture ah! of a kind of Nottingham-based sensibility with, at the same time, the uh, the glamorous Sweet Valley High that would be... could create something. I don't know which part Paddy Constantine will play, but it will be intriguing. <laughs> I would, I would love that. Just my two worlds colliding. <laughs> um, uh, Judy Bloom. I read a lot of Judy Bloom, and I think now thinking back, I often get asked when I go into schools, and um, young people often say, "Oh, who you know, who inspires you?" And thinking back, Judy Bloom, because she managed to write about such ordinary situations, mm. but in a way that made them sort of come alive, and you feel like you're you were being seen. Um, so I really did enjoy um, a lot of her, her books growing up. I read a few, I, I enjoyed a few classics as well. So like Pride and Prejudice and, and Wuthering Heights. So, you know, sort of classic teenage, sort of bookish teenage girl. See, how do you go? Because that's always an interesting thing. I was reading, oh man, I'm going to forget her her name. Uh, by the way, just because Trent's put up on the screen, it's called Demon Voices. That's the uh, Philip Pullman essay collection. Um, but I've just been reading a book which is is called something like um, Dead Blondes and uh, Bad 
witches or so oh, oh man i bought it in toronto <laughs> the other week and it's it's about so many different images of 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 women in in film and um you know something and she the, the author i think it's sadie doyle i think that's the name of the author uh writes about you know wuthering heights here is someone who is an ogre someone that at the same time in popular culture, you go, oh, Heathcliff is, is the Lord Bar and Dandy, you know, sometimes played by Cliff Richard in the, uh, um, but it's uh, in the, the, the musical Heathcliff, uh, whether it was the Cliff nominative determinism, I don't entirely know. But, you know, and then the same way Jane Eyre, someone mentioned Jane Eyre yesterday, mm. and you go with Jane Eyre, once you've read Jean Reese, you know, Wide Sagasso Sea, then Jane Eyre is just too dark and too, you know, he's an, an awful human being. And in the same way, he, you know, so it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah. Quite often the... And I don't think that registered with me when I was younger. I just think I read them. I thought, oh, that was a great story. I don't think I was thinking too, too deep. I'm quite an unemotional reader. So I read stuff and I'm like, wow, oh, I really enjoyed that. But um, I often sort of see people going, oh, I was in floods of tears. I'm just like, I don't think I've ever cried over a book. I felt a little bit sad. So I think I just read, I read things in quite um, an, un- yeah, an unemotional way. I was just like, oh, this is really enjoyed that that was great mm. and and that was kind of it and I would put them aside um and then I think from there I sort of then I mean I was sort of, I read Jackie Collins as a teenager as well um <laughs> which I was sort of sneaking away because I didn't want my mum knowing that I was reading Jackie Collins and Jilly Cooper no Jilly I've no, never read no, a Jilly Cooper no saucy uh polo players no like no I feel like if I'd had access to them I didn't there weren't a lot of books um at home like my dad the first book he ever read was the first book that I, that I wrote so I didn't grow up in that in a very bookish household so it was we just had to rely on the books that I had or books we borrowed from the library and I think the Jackie Collins was because my sister had a couple of them our older sister and that was the only reason if there'd been some Jilly Coopers I would have been on it um, but I just didn't have the access to them because um, Nottingham's got a great, what's it called? That private library that's just right in the centre. There's an amazing, I've, I visited there a while ago, and it's just kind of stuck between two very normal shops, pretty much in the centre. And there's a little, is there a, court, uh, a, a beautiful courtyard? courtyard. Yes, yes. And, and upstairs, all these old rooms where they also used to do photography in the kind of Victorian times. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. uh, private library. By the way, uh, Trent's put it up now Sadie Doyle, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers. So Ooh. I wasn't too far off that, and it's that... really, I, I found it very interesting. Okay, uh, I'm going to. Uh, and who do you read now when you're, uh, you know, are the, do, do you find yourself, because quite often you're writing with things which do require research, do you find yourself trapped very often in a, in a non-fiction world? Uh, I really like non-fiction. I mostly listen to it. So I'm, I, I'm, I mostly listen to my um, non-fiction on Audible unless it's specifically for research. And I'm like, well, I need, I really want the actual, mm. actual book um, there. Uh, at the moment, I'm writing um, a young adult novel based on um, the six wives of King Henry VIII. So I'm doing a lot of of um, that sort of research at the moment. Because there's a musical coming out as well, isn't there? About this? Well, is that's, called... that's, yeah, six. I, I saw yeah. it last year and that was what got me thinking. That's great. How do I make this work? How, do, how can I take these incredible stories and make it into a novel? And it's something I'm still grappling with. Um but I do find that I'm quite good at separating. So I can have a few books on the go at once and that's not a problem to me. I can sort of quite easily. Mm. I think, again, it's my sort of d- detachment when I'm reading. I can very easily just jump from one thing to the other and it's not See, I do that, but then I forget the name of Sadie Doyle's book. <laughs> See, that's the, I, I sometimes at the end of a year go, what did I read this year? Yeah, I write them down. I, I otherwise, read, Well, no that's what clue. I started to do mm. is I, 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 I've started to put them all on, on the same shelves because otherwise I go, I know lots gone in. And sometimes it comes out when the right trigger hits the right neurons, you know, but that's... Uh... So do you, do you have a favourite novelist? 
probably the person I admire the most is Kate Atkinson. Right. Just because I first of all read her sort of Jackson Brody series um, and I just thought she was incredible at plotting, you know, uh, a, a crime detective story. And I was just in awe of plotting because that's not my strength. My plots sort of come together by accident. Um, and then I read um, when she, um, Life After Life, which was her big, beautiful novel about reincarnation. And again, it was just, it was also a mix of admiration and just loving the way she tells stories. So she's probably the person that I kind of look look up to the most, but at the same time would never aspire to be because I think I'm a totally different kind of writer and I, I you know, I write quite simply. Um, and I like to think that that's a skill as well. But yeah, so I, I just admire her for doing something that I couldn't do, but not in a way that I feel sort of too jealous because I'm just like, we just do. Oh, so well, the, the story, things. like, you know, Paper Avenue, just it carries carries me along all, all the way through, you know, I've you know, read it on the way back from some event in Bournemouth. Having <laughs> stayed in the Celebrity Hotel Bournemouth, I was in the Dolly Parton room. Wow. Right next to the Johnny Cash room. Which one would I, I don't know if I... Were they themed to... inside? Was it the, like... It, no, it was just some just, photos. Okay. So there were some big photos, like a photo of Dolly Parton with Terry Wogan, right? And then it, and and everyone there's like the Michael Caine room and the Engelbert Humperdinck room. It's very cheap as well. It's quite quite reasonably priced. Okay. So if you want to stay inside the Dolly Parton room and you're down in in, in Bournemouth, it's, the it's, Celebrity it's, Hotel. It's for you. So your 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 latest one, uh, first day of my life, which is not out yet. It comes out the summer. Second uh, of July. Second July. Yeah. Mm. So uh, this book. Uh, is basically based on a really silly conversation I was having with a friend where, um, I don't know how we got to the subject, um, but it was, why would someone steal a baby? Um, and afterwards, I kind of think, why would someone steal a baby? Because mm. I write about teenagers. I'm like, why would a teenager steal a baby? And then I start writing, and as usual, um, when I write, is that I think it's about one thing, and that's just the starting point, and then it goes off in all sorts of different directions. And I actually wrote the book, a draft of it, um, and then realised it was all wrong and started again on New Year's Day last year and then wrote a completely different story. So um, <laughs> and discovered, yes, it starts with you um, thinking it's about someone who's stealing a baby and it's about something kind of different. Um, and that's how my writing process goes. Um, I never quite know what it's going to be about. Well, until... I won't ask you too much about that because <laughs> that is, uh, it's out in July, uh, whereas Paper Avalanche is out now. It's in it paperback is. now. It is. Uh, and uh, obviously there's other books as well. Uh, thank you very much for coming in, Lisa. Thanks and, for having me. Uh, as I said, go and uh, you've got a website, haven't you? And uh, yep. yep. Go to that website, find out more about those books and uh, we'll talk when the new one's out. Thank you very much. So do go and check that out. Now, uh, here is Robin and Lisa. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to become one of those. See Shambles, May 17th, online, Royal Albert Home. Great pun, by the way, Albert Hall. Uh, Press team, marketing team, whatever you want to call them. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles, where you can go to become one of them. Don't forget May 17th as part of Royal Albert Home. Sea Shambles is alive and well. Well? Is anything well at the moment? We'll say well. Uh, back next week with a new episode of Book Shambles as well. Stay home, take care, and we will be back then. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.